We're looking this morning at the subject of the death of death. And in your bulletin outline, we're reading from 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 26. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Very simply then, the first point in today's message is that death is our enemy. I think it is a rather a super silly suggestion to some because many assume death to be such a natural occurrence in human existence that to suggest that there is an evil intent in death or that death is somehow hostile to us is like saying water is your enemy or air is your enemy. It sounds absurd. Everyone drinks water to survive. We all breathe air to live. These are all givens when it comes to life. But have you never heard people explain that, well, death is just a part of living? I've heard that said so many times. What they mean to say is that death is so commonplace, so much a part of reality, that one should not conceive of life without death. They are saying there is no life on the planet that does not eventually die. Now there is truth in this, of course. But the supposition supporting this statement are not true historically. Unbelievers in general and evolutionists in particular believe from their experience that because life always ends in death, death has been part of the natural order from the beginning. Darwin's whole theory of survival of the fittest is based on the assumption that death has to be. It just has to be. Death purges the species of animals and mankind of the weak and the infirm and the disabled and the mentally incompetent, resulting in a stronger, more viable species, so taught Darwin. And you can see that in this scenario, death is not an enemy, it's a friend. It's a foot soldier helping to advance the race by ridding us of the weak so that the strong may emerge and Preserve humanity. This is why Margaret Sanger, founder of Planned Parenthood, believed in and promoted birth control. The purpose in promoting birth control was, in her words now, to create a race of thoroughbreds. Or again, in speaking of blacks and immigrants and indigents, she said, They are human weeds, reckless breeders, spawning human beings who never should have been born. Most people don't know that about Margaret Sanger and Planned Parenthood. All they know is the Planned Parenthood part but not what her philosophy was behind that. Here was her model, and I'll give it to you. More children from the fit, less from the unfit. That is the chief aim of birth control. 
end quote. Adolf Hitler was also a student of Darwin. Ernst Rudin, director of the foremost German eugenics, eugenics being selective breeding, the, the research institute, the Kaiser Wilhelm Institute for Genealogy in Munich, Germany, 1933. They passed the Sterilization Act. And in an address to the German Society for Race Hygiene, he recalled the early fruitless days when the racial hygienists had labored in vain to alert the public to the special value of the Nordic race as, in his words, culture creators and the dangers of the, in his words, unnatural attempts to preserve the health of hereditary defectives. We can hardly express our efforts, he says, more plainly or appropriately than in the words of the Fuhrer. And then he quotes Adolf. Whoever is not physically or mentally fit must not pass on his defects to his children. The state must take care that only the fit produce children. Conversely, it must be regarded as reprehensible to withhold healthy children from the state. German program was inspired by a Dr. Paul Popeno. And he was a leader in the U.S., United States, eugenics movement. And he wrote in 1933 an article entitled Eugenic Sterilization. He printed it in Birth Control Review, Margaret Sanger's magazine. And here is what he wrote. He advocated for America, for America now, the sterilization of between 5 and 10 million people. We don't know that about our history either, do we? There were people in the eugenics movement right here in our own country advocating what Hitler put to practice in Germany. Now, these are social Darwinists taking what Darwin saw as biological evolution, applying it to society, and saying, you know, survival of the fittest sounds pretty good. Uh, well, we can do better. We can make the race stronger. We can tweak things. And so to these and people like them, death, is a friend. Death is a friend. And in particular, a way to customize the human race to their standards of perfection. Now to others who are not ideologues, they may simply look upon death as a friend if, if it will alleviate their pain or their suffering, or end their shame or disgrace over some evil of which they are guilty, or some evil that has been done to them, and they still bear the shame of that. So it depends on which side of the coin people are on, but you have the ideologues that are out to change society, and then you have people that are just saying, I want to be rid of 
the pain, the shame, the suffering I'm going through in this life. But you know what? God calls death an enemy. An enemy. And he portrays death as something foreign and hostile to the created order. Paul says sin entered the world through one man and death through sin. It's like a doorway. Sin opened the doorway to death. And in this way, writes Paul, death came to all men because all sin. It wasn't there. It came. It walked through a door. Romans 5, verse 12. Death is the penalty of sin. Sin being disobedience to any requirements set by God. To our first parents, you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely, what? Die. Disobedience, sin, you will die. Genesis 2, verse 17. Well, they ate and they died. Death wasn't there before, but it came then and there. And it has been part of, get it now, I cursed humanity ever since. But not with the original humanity of Adam and Eve. Death and sin work together. They shake hands, one feeding the other. James writes this way, But each one is tempted when... By his own evil desires he is dragged away and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's full grown, gives birth to death. James 1, verse 14 and 15. Death is sin's child. So wherever there is sin, there is death. But in the beginning... It was not so. Death is an alien to our world. What God created was good. What God created was perfect. What God created was life. You can read the Genesis account. Death is of the devil's doing through the successful temptation to sin in our first parents. It was never part of God's family But it's an intruder, it's an interloper who took advantage of a moment in time to challenge God's word. Jesus taught that when the wolf comes, it is to attack the sheep and scatter them. John 10, verse 12. Death was not an invited guest into God's paradise, but an uninvited intruder who ruined the race. And men fear death. Because they know it is the product of their own sin and receive its just power over them by their consent. This enemy has an enemy's agenda. There is no mercy with this enemy. There is no leniency. There is no mitigation of the pain that he inflicts. Infants die, and not just the elderly. Healthy youth, in the midst of their strength as teens, die, as well as the affirm being cut down. Every city has its cemetery. Every field buried remains. 
the sea bottom, and the highest mountains contain the bones of the dead. Starting tonight on Discovery Channel, they're going to celebrate the 100th anniversary of the sinking of the Titanic, in which 1,500 souls lost their lives. The ship became their tomb. Every household in the world has met and experienced Mr. Death. The Grim Reaper has visited and continues to destroy every race, every nationality, every culture. There's no certainty of life, but every certainty of death. The Bible says it this way, It is appointed for men to die. And after that comes judgment. Hebrews 9, verse 27. It's appointed. Spurgeon made this observation. He says, The tear of the bereaved, the wail of the widow, the moan of the orphan, these have been death's war music, and he has found therein a song of victory. How colorful. And also, how true. Now secondly, what are some then of the characteristics of death as an enemy? Number one, death is commonplace. It is a common enemy. When people speak of death in friendly terms, they're either self-deceived or totally ignorant of its nature. There is nothing beautiful about death, nor peaceful, nor restful. I can tell you as a pastor and officiating at many funerals, I have people come to me from the family or friends, and they will look at Mr. or Mrs. So-and-so in the casket, and they will make statements like, doesn't she look so peaceful? Well, at least he's at rest now. How would you like to answer them and be honest? Now, if they know the Lord, yeah, they're, they are at peace and they are at rest. But they're usually referring to the fact that so-and-so that has died was suffering from some kind of cancer or some malady, arthritis or whatever that was debilitating and they think absence of pain means peace. Absence of turmoil in their life means rest. There's nothing beautiful about death nor peaceful, nor restful. The description of death in the Revelation is scary. Let me read it for you. John describes the opening of the fourth seal in the Revelation in this way. He says, I looked, and there before me was a pale horse. Its rider was named Death. 
and Hades was following close behind him. They were given power over a fourth of the earth to kill by sword, famine, plague, and by the wild beasts of the earth. Revelation 6, verse 8. A pale horse, but more, probably more like a translucent horse. Or at least an albino. And its rider is Mr. Death. Washington Irving's The Headless Horseman cannot match this description because Irving's work is fiction. But John writes under compulsion of God concerning the real future. Wherever this pale horse puts down its hoofs, the ground shakes and the population is devastated. Grown men cry, the super jocks wail. Indeed, every unbeliever from king to peasant is documented here. If you look further down in the text, here's what John writes. Then the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, every slave, every free man, hid in caves and among the rocks of the mountains. They called out to the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us! Hide us! From the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. Revelation 6, verse 15 and 16. See, they know Mr. Death brings the curse and the wrath of God as he rides on his pale horse. Death by itself is the king of terror, but when in the hands of a great judge, oh, then it is too much for men to bear. The doom of the entire race is forewarned in this curse given in Genesis. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. Genesis 3 verse 19. There is no escape from this indictment. There is no reprieve, no exemption. Death is a common enemy. Secondly, death is a subtle enemy. When I was growing up, there were certain activities my parents considered more dangerous than others. They were like Ralphie's parents in the movie A Christmas Story, whose great wish for a Christmas gift was a Red Ryder BB gun. But every authority that Ralphie encountered, be it teacher or parent or policeman or what, said, oh, you don't want a BB gun, you'll shoot your eye out. In other words, they considered the BB gun too dangerous for a child to use. You know, as a sideline, I can tell you that. I didn't have a Red Ryder BB gun, but I had another brand of BB gun, and I, I shot it, and it bounced off a stone, and went right into my glasses. Before I was wearing glasses at the time. Not contacts and not LASIK surgery. Well, similarly, we tend to view certain activities more deadly than others. Skydiving, Bungee cord lunges off of cliffs, whitewater rafting, bull riding, stock car racing. The list is practically endless. But the reality is that death is an enemy that is ever vigilant 
and ready to take a life in any given situation. Choking on a chicken bone at dinner. An allergic reaction to a food or a drink that suffocates. A mugging in the mall parking lot that went bad. An innocent Sunday afternoon ride in the country hitting a power line across the road. We never know where death is planning its ambush. Its silent stride follows close on our heels and catches us from behind when we least expect it. No fanfare. No trumpet sound. No time to prepare. No way to brace oneself. Just swift and silent. Job writes it this way, Man born of woman is of few days and full of trouble. He springs up like a flower and he withers away. Like a flashing, fleeting shadow, he does not endure. Man dies and is laid low. He breathes his last and he's no more. As water disappears from the sea or a riverbed becomes parched and dry, He's talking about the evaporation process, by the way. So man lies down and does not rise till the heavens are no more. Men will not awake or be roused from their sleep. Job 14, verse 1 and following. If you just think of death like, a, like he's talking about it, the evaporation process. Life-giving water. It's there in the riverbed. One day, and the next day, it's puddles. And the next day after that, it's no more. Where to go? Death is a subtle enemy. Number three, death is an unavoidable enemy. In that same soliloquy, Job said, Man's days are determined. Listen to him. You have decreed the number of his months, and you have set limits that he cannot exceed. Job 14, verse 5. David's prayer was this. Remember how fleeting is my life, praise David, for what futility you have created all men. What man can live and not see death or save himself from the power of the grave? Psalm 89, verse 47 and 48. And Solomon, David's son, wrote this, No man has power over the wind to contain it, and so no one has power over the day of his death. As no one is discharged in time of war, so wickedness will not release those who practice it. Ecclesiastes 8, verse 8. What's he saying? Well, he's saying that just as certain as it is that a soldier will not receive his discharge papers when the army is engaged in war, so there is no escape from death's appointed day. It's an obligation. You're going to face it. You're going to meet it. So am I. 
It's unavoidable. It's irrevocable. Even God's people die in time when they come to the end of their days. And then number four, death is unpredictable. Being people who like to plan things, there's a lot of interest these days in pre-planned funerals. Get advertisers, advertisements in the mail about that. It's on television. You can plan funerals. You can plan weddings. But you cannot plan your dying day. That's unpredictable. Men die in the most odd of circumstances. Preachers drop dead in the pulpit. And God-fearing ministers usually prefer to go that way. Serving Christ with their last breath. Immoral men die of heart attacks in the very exercise of their immorality. Babies die in their sleep, and the elderly as well. Even healthy businessmen who go to the gym on a regular basis and have a, a, an account at the local Victania, who have everything to live for, cannot predict outcomes. The rich farmer who had a bumper crop in the scripture built himself bigger barns. And here's his, his boast. I'll say to myself, self, you have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take life easy. <laughs> Eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, you fool. This very night, your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with anyone who stores up things for himself. Things, things, things for himself. But is not rich towards God. Not rich towards God. Luke 12, 19 and following. There were 15 tornadoes this week, this week, in the city of Dallas, Texas, alone. One city, big city to be sure, but one city, 15 tornadoes. Yeah. We think we, we're so smart. We think we're going to manage our life. The unpredictability of death is why James warns us as Christians. Now listen you who say, this is him speaking. Now you, listen you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city. We'll spend a year there. We'll carry on business and we'll make money. Does that sound like our society? 
in our economy, they're trying to make money. But this still goes on. No, I got my business plan. Not doing very well here in Michigan, so I'm going to move south of the border a little bit. I'm going to go to such and such a state, take my business with me, set up, work there a year, make money. Now listen to James. He says, why? Why? You do not even know what will happen tomorrow. And his point is, let alone a year from now. What is your life? I asked James. You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this and do that. But as it is, you boast and you brag. And all such boasting is evil. James 4, verse 13 through 16. It says, your life's a mist. When I got up this morning, it was cold outside, another frost. Looked out over my mowed grass out back. The sun was hitting on that frost. There was the mist coming up off of that cold ground. Not ready to come down to church this morning, looked out again. No frost, no mist. Where'd it go? Here today, gone. James says, your life is like that. So, yeah, well, we have longevity in my family. I have longevity in my family, too. My dad's going to be 97 years old this July. His mother died at age 97. And so when we were visiting this past week, we had some serious talk that our days are in God's hands. Their days are written in His book. Because you have certain longevity in your genes does not mean you'll live beyond anything that God has planned for you. Death is our enemy. It has notable characteristics which none of us can alter. It's not your friend either. Now, secondly then, it is an enemy, but it is an enemy doomed to destruction. That sounds odd, doesn't it? But our text says, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Now, what are some of the indicators of death's destruction? Well, number one, believers in Christ have been resurrected in soul to new life in God when before, as unbelievers, they were dead in trespasses and sins, Ephesians 2, verse 1. When Adam and Eve disobeyed God, they died instantly. No, not physically, but spiritually. In their soul, their soul died. They became dead towards God. Dead in soul. An enemy of their creator, an ally of the tempter. And there is no death like this. To be dead towards God is to be his enemy. Dead toward God makes people oblivious to reverence and worship of God. 
cold in the soul, agnostic in their thinking. Religious perhaps, oh yeah, maybe. But for self-glory and not for God's glory. Any worship so-called is directed to an idol God of their own making and not towards the God of the Bible who has declared himself what he is. And this makes people feel confident and at peace. But it's a false peace. Sin and death are far more serious for a few religious rituals to ease or to rectify. We need a sin bearer. We need an advocate, a substitute, a mediator, someone to stand in the gap and bridge heaven and hell with God on the one side in all of his holiness and man, the rebellious sinner, on the other side. And this go-between is not many. Many roads lead to heaven. All roads lead to heaven. That's absurd. Go-between, the bridger of the gap is one. And he's God's uniquely begotten son, Jesus Fully man so he can represent humanity and fully God so he being sinless may atone for the sins of others. If he were a sinner, he'd have to atone for his own sins. But being sinless, he can be the atonement for others. Let me read it to you. For there is one God. This is right out of the book. I'm not making this stuff up. There is one God and there is one mediator between God and man. And that is the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. 1 Timothy 2, verse 5 and 6. And that testimony is the good news of the gospel, disseminated by Christ himself and later by his disciples. See verse 7 as well in our text here. Paul says the apostles, one of the things that they did was to preach Christ. Or again we read in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Peter put it this way. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. Wow. Our sins in his body on the cross. So that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray. But now you have returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. 1 Peter 2, verse 23 and 24. Who are these, who are these you people? The you people that the Bible authors keep referencing. You, 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 you. The writer of Hebrews says, Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, 
and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely it's not angels that he helps, but Abraham's descendants. Hebrews 2, verse 14 through 16. Well, I just answered a question and created another question. Who are Abraham's descendants? Talking about the Jews, 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 Jews. The children. Who's Abraham's children or descendants? Scripture declares that the whole world is a prisoner of sin. So that what was promised being given through faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. You're all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. You're all one in Christ Jesus. Here it is now. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Galatians 3, 22 through 29. Who's Abraham's children? All those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because Jesus Christ is that promised seed of Abraham that would come and be a blessing to the nations. What is the practical outcome of trusting in Jesus as mediator and sin bearer? Peter says that it brings us back into God's fold under Christ as shepherd. True, very true. Paul spoke to Timothy about God who has saved us and called us to a holy life. Not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time. But it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death. Here you have it. And has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. 2 Timothy 1, verse 9 and 10. So the first indicator that death has been destroyed is that life, spiritual deadness in those who believe has been ended in Christ's cross through faith and repentance. We're alive in Christ. Can I say alive to God again? All of us believers know this. There was a time in our life, we had no time for God. Maybe you're like that today, still. As an unbeliever, you're sitting here this morning. You have no time for God. And then, God does something. God seeks us out. God finds us. God applies His grace. God grants us mercy. We hear the gospel, not just with the external ears, that go in one ear and out the other sometimes, <laughs> many times. But we hear with the ears of the heart. And God grants faith and repentance. And we believe what we did not believe before. And we turn away from the sin that we loved so much. 
Second indicator is Jesus' own resurrection. What God cannot do for His Son, He cannot do for us. Resurrection, by any definition, is a miracle. That's why people have trouble believing in it. No one disputes that though they believe in death, they don't believe in resurrection. Their thought is, no one comes back from the dead. And by the way, that's our experience today too. So we look at experience, we look historically, and we say, hmm, there's no, no resurrection. But you know, there was a time, there was a time in history when people's experiences were different. The time when God's Son walked this earth. A ruler once approached Jesus about his sick daughter. But before Jesus could get to her, she died. He still went. And the scripture says he took her by the hand and he said to her, Talitha kum, which means little girl, I say to you, get up. And immediately the girl stood up and walked around She was 12 years old. And at this, they were completely astonished. Mark 5, verse 41. Well, yeah. That's not an everyday occurrence. Again, at the town of Nain, N-A-I-N, a funeral, a funeral was already in the process for the dead son of a widow woman. Jesus did the unthinkable. He interrupted the funeral. Uh, 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 hold up there, guys. They're carrying the coffin out of the city. The mourners are there. They're dressed in black. The weeping is going on. Hold up, hold up, hold up. Then he went up, I'm reading scripture. Then he went up and he touched the coffin. And those carrying it stood still. And he said, young man, I say to you, get up. And the dead man sat up. And began to talk, and Jesus gave him back to his mother. Luke 7, verse 14 and 15. Now, brethren, these things did not happen in some remote woods somewhere. In towns, in the cities, where copious amounts of people lived. At the tomb of Lazarus, when many of the Jews had come out of Jerusalem and were in Bethany to support the loss of Lazarus, brother to Mary and Martha. In comes Jesus. And we are told Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out! And the dead man came out, his hands and his feet wrapped with strips of linen, which was their burial cloths, and a cloth around his face. And Jesus said to them, Take off the grave clothes and let him go. John 11 Verse 43 and 44. And these crowds were all witnesses. Oh, and by the way, if you read the rest of the story, it said many Jews came to know Christ as Savior because of that incident. They were coming out of the cities to to interrogate and question Lazarus. Is this really true? Guy was dead. You're dead. You were put in a grave. They rolled the stone over. Then they unrolled the stone. You came out. You're wrapped in clothes. 
They get the whole story, and when they hear it, they're converted to Christ. Why? Because only God can give life. And when they witnessed that, they understood that Jesus was God's son. What about Jesus' own resurrection? Let me read it for you. There was a violent earthquake. Did you know that? There was a violent earthquake. For an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, he rolled back the stone and sat on it. The Roman guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men, paralyzed with fear. I love it. The angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you're looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He has risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go, quickly, tell his disciples. Matthew 28, verse 2 and following. For the next 40 days, Jesus appeared to his followers, and Paul tells us, it's in our text, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 6, after that he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Death was defeated and made subservient to Christ. And in that we are united with him by faith, in death, burial, and resurrection, death is no longer a punishment for sin to us. The punishment of all of our sin is paid for, can I say atoned for, it is forgiven, it is forgotten. Because Christ bore it all. Okay, then we ask the question, why then do we still die? Because our bodies must be made like that of the resurrected Christ. We have that in our text, verse 50. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Something has to change, what Paul is saying. The believer's assurance is in this statement from Philippians. But our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly wait a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by that power that enables Him to bring everything under His control, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like His glorious body. Philippians 3, verse 20 and 21. Death serves us in this way. Verse 37 and following of our text. When you sow, you do not plant the body that will be, but just a seed, perhaps of wheat or something else. But God gives it a body as he has determined. And to each kind of seed, he gives its own body. So will it be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown, buried, is perishable. It's raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It's raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. 
It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. Death does this work for us. So in those resurrections in Jesus' day, and in particular his own resurrection, we see the death knell coming to that enemy of our souls. And then lastly, death's final destruction comes last. It comes last. Notice what our text says. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Now death is not our only enemy. The world is our enemy. The flesh is the, our enemy. The devil is our enemy. These Just to list three others. They comprise a greater threat to us than death. Better to die than to continue in sin. Where the second death, the lake of fire, is the payment. Better to die physically than to become the ally of the devil in doing and promoting evil. So our concentration then is not on defeating death, but these other enemies right now who rob us of fidelity to God and the peace of a righteous life. I'm not worried about death. I'm worried about how I'm going to live for the Lord in a righteous and God-honoring way. And only after you have won victory in your life over the enticements of the world and the sinfulness of your lusts need you concern yourself with death. You know, there is a sense in which death will just take care of itself. Dying grace is not needed till the hour of your death. Have you ever worried as a believer, say, oh, I hope, <laughs> I hope when death comes knocking at my door that, that I won't... Um, I won't say something or do something that will dishonor God. And I know you're concerned. But the answer to that is, when you're ready to die, God gives dying grace. Just like now as you live your Christian life, He gives living grace for you. Grace for living and fighting the good fight of the faith is what you and I need now. And can I say it this way? If you live well, you'll die well too. God has work for death to do before it is utterly destroyed. Let me close with this. By death, God preaches some of the best sermons to his people about life and living. Death reminds us of our what? our frailty, our need for a Savior. Funerals of the redeemed are testimony to the forgiveness and the greatness of the cross's power to change a life, to liberate. Death does that for us. It reminds us that we are not our own Savior, but that we need a Savior. Number two, by death we are conformed to Christ, to Christ in a way that being translated to glory, which is also promised in Scripture for some, 
that being translated to glory without death are not. Paul puts it this way. Listen to this. He said, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. And so, somehow, to attain to the resurrection from the dead. Philippians 3, verse 10 and 11. Paul says, in effect, I don't want to skip death. My Savior died. I want to be identified with Him in every aspect that I can be identified. Not just in resurrection life, but in death, burial, resurrection. Thirdly, by death, the believers are ushered home. Paul says, we know that as we that as long as we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. That's a given. Long as I'm here, I can't be there. He's talking about the soul, of course. We know that as long as we are at home in the body, we're away from the Lord. We live by faith, not by sight. We would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 6 through 8. So sometimes you will hear believers talking about their deceased loved one as a home-going. They'll say about that Christian mother or that Christian father, well, they're at home with the Lord. This is where they're getting that. It's right out of the book. Absent from the body present with the Lord for those that are believers. When all God's people are gathered into his family, the end comes. Let me read it for you from the scriptures here. The revelation. Then death and Hades are thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. And then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city. I saw the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, now the dwelling of God is with men and he will live with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things is passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, I'm making everything new. It's done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, first and the last, the beginning and the end. To him who is thirsty, I will give to drink without cost from the spring of the water of life. 
He who overcomes will inherit all of this. And I will be his God. And he will be my son. Revelation 20, verse 14 and following. All things new. Destruction of death. That's what we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's the significance of the resurrection. And so that's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians, and we read it this morning, if Christ is not raised, you're a goner. I'm a goner. We're lost. If he could not defeat this last and final enemy, you're not going to defeat it. But praise the Lord, he goes on to say, but Christ has been risen. And that's what the apostles preached. And for those 40 days, after Jesus' resurrection, they got to talk with him, visit with him, learn some more of him before his ascension back into glory. He's coming again for his own. Are you going to be ready? Are you going to be one of those child that believes in him, repents of your sin? Lord, grant to us this day saving faith to believe and repentance to turn away from the sin that we love. Help us to understand that sin is the doorway through which death gets its authority, its power. You know, it's a killer. Sin is a killer. The wages of sin is death. Death. That's what we get for sinning. Death. That's what we're paid. The check is written out in our name, and it says, Death. Pay them death. Christ comes along. He says, now wait just a minute. For all who will put their faith in me, I will die for them. Oh, oh I will do more. I will go to that grave and conquer that death. And I will come out of that grave victorious and whatever I do I do for my people whatever I gain I gain for them and they will drink of the spring of the water of life and there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. Lord, this is your promise. And it's not an empty promise. It's founded upon the solid, objective work of your cross and of your resurrection. This day, on Easter Sunday, we celebrate you. We celebrate your salvation. We celebrate eternal life. Bring whom you will this day and draw them effectively into your kingdom. Grant them that faith they do not have and that repentance of sin which they do not have and make them your child today, child of Abraham. For we ask this for the glory of Jesus and for their good. Amen.